0: Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies.
1: Hello, everyone. This is This Week in EdTech for the week of February 11th. Happy Black History Month to all of you. We have some great stories coming up today, including headlines and our guest, Alberto Arenasa from Transcend Network. We're going to go ahead and jump in with our headlines to start us off, Alex, with the higher ed government beat.
0: Yeah, a couple of really interesting issues in government higher ed policy, especially federal government higher ed policy this week. The first one was the House of Representatives in the U.S. passed what they call the College Transparency Act, which is an act part of a larger bill. And that act is actually basically forcing colleges (laughs) to share a lot more data publicly than they had been sort of forced to do in the past, data about completion rates and outcomes and uh, a lot of pieces of data that could be used in the future to guide government decisions. So that is past the House. It is not yet law, but it is something we should all keep an eye on because it will have a, a hopefully a really positive effect on EdTech in terms of giving us all more data to work with.
1: And this raises the question of where does EdTech and policy collide? And this Transparency Act has the potential, one, to create new requirements for EdTech companies in terms of demonstrating efficacy, impact, and outcomes, but also could create massive amounts of data for us to analyze on what's really working in the space. The other big story in this bucket on higher ed is around the free community college movement, a champion really by Bernie Sanders You know, in the prior election cycle. Jill Biden, the first lady, has really been the figurehead for this one. And basically on Monday, she gave a speech and said, it's not happening. So the dream in the U.S. of two-year colleges, post-high school, being free for everyone is a dream deferred. The criticism was mainly around, you know, mixed results in terms of completion rates and efficacy. You know, you have to think that with some of the new higher ed ed tech powered models out there that might be able to show higher efficacy, there might be an opportunity to come back for this one. But the overall price tag would have been forty-five billion dollars for two years of free community college over the next five years. So that one has gotten a big pass. Alex, as you you know, connect the dots between both the transparency and the lack of you know community college support. What are your main takeaways and implications for the space?
0: It's a great question. What putting together the two headlines. I think what I would say is that if you are a ed tech founder or working at an ed tech company that works in the higher education space, especially if you work in persistence or nudging or trying to do behavioral change, these two headlines really go together because the free community college system is not going to happen at this moment. Community colleges are still, and would be even more so if there was free, but community colleges have the highest attrition rates. They have the hardest time keeping uh, working learners in school. So I would say that the combination of having a lot of additional data around persistence and completion, there not being this sort of sea change in community college, I would really look at how to uh, help first-generation learners or those at risk of dropping out in any context I would bake that into my strategy because you're going to have the data to actually be able to back up your claims and test.
1: Yeah, we've talked a little bit about higher ed having some first mover advantages and some more winner take all dynamics. And, you know, it's easy to get distracted with the small number of elite uh, colleges that have pretty big controversies around admissions and trust. But I think for the community college space, this lack of funding, and the increased focus on outcomes is is going to accelerate consolidation. And, you know, I was talking with Mike Berlin from Guild the other day, and, you know, he talked about this not playing out as a nationwide ecosystem or map. It's really state by state. And so I think we're going to end up seeing some states that do double down on their community college systems, others that really step away and embrace fully alternative models and others that, you know, really don't do much and there will be a vacuum. So it's definitely a space to watch. Um, That actually leads us to earlier in the pipeline, a space that you and I know really well, Alex, personalized learning. Uh, It used to be a buzzword, then it was a bad word. Well, it's back again. Personalized learning is now getting a makeover with social emotional learning being at the forefront. There's a number of companies out there, an article recently highlighted WayFounder and Empowerly that are really trying to bring personalized learning and dashboards to the social-emotional space. And the concept is not really the original concept of personalized learning, which originally it was based on a student's academic proficiency. They would be served up, differentiated learning programs or models the kind of new frame for personalized learning which i think is probably a iterative improvement is really understanding who the learner is from multiple angles and then providing differentiated learning experiences that allow them to engage and connect with the learning even if it's not necessarily about accelerating the sprint to some sort of test score as the kind of personalized learning version 1 was you know i know you have some unique um, perspective on this, having worked on this yourself as well.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And personalized learning has always been a little bit of a fuzzy concept. It stood for a lot of different worthwhile movements in education and, and in ed tech. Sometimes it stood for sort of mastery learning and the personalization was about the pace. You could do personalized pace where students can go at their different speeds based on how they master content. And that's one version of personalized learning. Another is Uh, adaptive learning where just as ben you just said people get different content or different modalities of content based on their prior proficiency or base you know and then a a third which i think is was not really always included in the personalization the the idea of personalized learning in the past is the idea of personalizing learning to the um the, the social emotional needs and and even the uh neurodiversity of students we've had you know special ed for many years and there's lots of um, amazing research in it and incredible practitioners but i don't think the personalized learning and the the neurodiverse movements have always gone side by side there's also been personalization in terms of interests by the way companies like no red ink where you get you know you get questions based on what baseball team you follow or what celebrity you like. So personalization has been this sort of umbrella concept. I think this is a very positive move to sort of rebrand personalization as around social-emotional learning and neurodiversity. And, you know, CZI, which was one of the, you know, really had personalized learning at the core of of its education philosophy, has just released this Along, which is a a standalone product designed for teacher-student mentoring. And that's in and of itself, is really a leaning into this idea that that building re- strong relationships with students, no matter where their heads are at, is really the key to what personalized learning should mean. What do you think, Ben?
1: Yeah. You know, my hot take on this one is when I hear the buzzwords coming back again, I greet it with the kind of proverbial eye roll. And I'm sure a lot <laughs> of listeners out there are like, oh, great. So we just talked about a topic with probably fifteen different buzzwords in the same in the yes. same uh, like monologue. As I peel the onion a little bit, I think about the so what, and the so what here is really around. Okay, are we going to be delivering different education models to students? How much will this really change what's going on in the classroom? And ultimately, I think the lesson learned from the first personalized learning movement was it's really hard to change systems. It's hard to scale. It's hard to sell. It's hard to get adoption. And so as great as Wayfinder and Powerly and some of these learnfully, and some of these other platforms are with their adverbial names, you know, getting it in the field is really, really hard. Speaking of really, really hard, I'm going to move on to headline number three. Uh, Wall Street Journal, sounding the alarm for everyone in the tech community writ large around an article this week around repricing of uh, funding rounds. And Tiger Global, who um, if you haven't been following Tiger Global, just Google it. They've basically been a huge driver of soaring valuations in the latest rounds. And some of that has been fueled by low interest rates and by a very, very uh, bullish stock market. But as the market has really tanked here in the last couple of weeks and particularly impacted EdTech stocks, some of these investors are pulling back. And so we're watching really closely around whether that's going to hit or reprice rounds. In the article itself, it talks more around B and C growth rounds being repriced. And that's when you're usually looking for a 5 to 10x return on your investment and the kind of time horizon of IPO is more in the four or five year time horizon. So the odds are it'll have a greater impact on those middle rounds and less of an impact on A and seed rounds. But you know, ultimately this entire system, you know, rationally would be connected, and you would see all kind of rounds reprice. And when we have a, a, a period of time where thing, where values are getting pushed down, the common investor advice to founders is conserve cash and like play for the long run because they don't want to have uh, their next round raised at a lower valuation or a down round or a cram down. So it is going to be a really tricky environment now for our ed tech brothers and sisters out there navigating funding rounds because the hot stove is cooling down a little bit.
0: Yes, it's going to be interesting to watch how that plays out uh, in, in the future. I think, you know, we've just seen 2021 be this enormous banner year for EdTech IPOs. There have been a, a lot of IPOs this year compared to any previous year in in, in the last decade or more. And I think now the, the, the world is looking at some of these EdTech IPOs. The number of public companies has really has basically doubled or more in that are education technology specific so i think what happens in this next few months if there is some kind of repricing or if there are if people lower their estimates about where the stocks are going um it could be that the that that the whole sector sort of suffers from any kind of repricing within any single company because people see these companies all sort of locked together moving in the same direction so the whole sector may see some kind of a damage done
1: yeah and you know another important point is as stock market returns decrease some of the budgets that go towards education spending are hit because those you know stock returns tend to accrue to the highest earners and you know from a marginal tax rate those tend to be pretty high contributors to you know state level funding if not federal so like in a state like california you know where we've had banner surplus year, something like 50 billion surplus projected for next year based on the 2020 tax returns. 2021, if it is a harder year for the stock market, it could also hit EdTech founders on the revenue side. So speaking of revenue and the markets, how are things going on the M&A beat, Alex? Yeah.
0: So uh, actually a, a lot of acquisitions uh, announced this week, Let's we'll, we'll go through them real quickly. Not too much analysis, but we'll jump back in and, and talk about a few of them. So the Sengage group acquired uh, InfoSec, which is a cybersecurity education company for almost $200 million. That is interesting. StudyTube uh, it, it acquired a course catalog platform in Europe that I think is B2B focused, as well as closing a Series B. GoStudent, which is the only ed tech unicorn in Europe, acquired Seneca Learning and TUS Media Group. I may be mispronouncing that after they just got a very large funding round in India. Brightchamps, uh, which is a, a global platform, acquired a company called Education 10X, which does financial literacy for children. That's an interesting move. And you know, speaking of community colleges, Aviso Retention, which is a Ohio-based ed tech company, was just acquired by a larger company called Watermark. That is a company specifically in exactly the space we named, which is keeping students from dropping out of community colleges, which is a serious problem for those schools. And then lastly, Modern Campus, which is a higher ed platform company, acquired two companies. One is a text messaging platform called Signalvine. The other is Augusoft, a management system for workforce development. So you're starting to see more about the higher ed and workforce world starting to combine, seeing, you know, Cengage, which is an ed tech publisher by a cybersecurity education company. They're obviously trying to move into the skills gap. You're seeing some crossover kind of moves. What what do you think, Ben? Do any of these stand out for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, a couple trends that we always talk about is the consolidation of the industry and also these blending of of genres. I really enjoyed the Aviso Retention article because it was an EdTech founder who bootstrapped for 10 years. And it's often the headlines will go to the folks who raised a big round or had a big exit. But when you're bootstrapping, it can feel like a long, long road. And for a decade, Aviso Retention was bootstrapped in Columbus, Ohio, and gets that exit. And I think for founders out there, from an economic standpoint, Doing things on your own can be really intimidating, but when you do exit and you get the lion's share—if not, you know, 100% of the proceeds—it can af- often be a better return than if you've been diluted from raising multiple rounds. So, really enjoyed that that update. I also really appreciated Alex; you sharing this with me, and hopefully, we can put in the show notes. Deal Room, a new edtech dashboard kind of co-founded by BrightEye. You know, we had Reese last week talking to us and, you know, it's kind of Eurocentric in terms of a a deal database, but it really is like a a similar product to Whole on IQ in terms of analysis and details. And so when we get to our game later, I pulled some insights from there, but, you know, another great way to stay abreast of what's going on on the M&A and fundraising side
0: hundred percent. And you didn't mention the best part of this EdTech Dash, which is that it is completely free, unlike many of the other information platforms out there. It is open source and free and founders can actually apply to add their companies to it. But it is trying to be a big, free, open catalog of what's happening at EdTech. It's definitely a great resource for, for all of us who follow the field. And we will definitely put the link in the show notes. Ben, talk to us about book bans.
1: Yeah. So, headline number five, wrapping up our headlines of the week. Alex, I'm on a school board, and we get a lot of controversial things coming across in the board meetings. But man, has January and early February been a shocker. The kind of rise in book bans across the U.S. been both um, tragic and disappointing, with state legislators weighing in on what schools and school libraries can have as well as what can the public library have. And it is part of a broader theme of activism at the school board level. And gosh, I wish there was activism at the school board level around teaching and learning. In (laughs) this case, we're getting a lot of activism around, you know, um, national politics. And, you know, it does tie into Black History Month in that Toni Morrison, a treasure of our country, Had her book beloved banned in many schools. And so a group called Voters of Tomorrow, a youth led nonprofit, is giving out hundreds and hundreds of copies of that in Austin and Fairfax, Virginia. And let's just, let's be real here. Like intellectual freedom starts in our public schools. And we need to have, we need to take a stand that our educators are entrusted with supporting the learning journeys of our students and this overreach from a policy standpoint from our state legislators is really concerning and like politically likely to backfire in in some areas in other areas this is just a continuation of the mask bans this is a continuation of gender identity politics that um ultimately Weighs on a public system that is already straining with COVID and and so on. You know what are some of the trends that you're seeing here, and how does this connect to the bigger picture?
0: It's it's really interesting to see, and I think you know my my take on this is that there has been a sort of real loss of faith in institutions in the U.S. for for quite a while, and people have different theories about why that is. But the sort of the approval rates of Congress, the approval rates of Even the military, a lot of very serious American institutions have gotten really um, have become polarizing. Have been have become places of of political conflict, and I think during the COVID era, we've seen elementary and high schools really at the forefront of that. There's fights about mask mandates. There are fights about all sorts of things. the, The critical race theory. There's a lot of political. Hot buttons that are happening in schools, and I think that this book banning is an extension of that. I think you are having a populist uprising against the idea of you know of public schooling in some ways, and and the idea of teachers and curriculum creators being the arbiters of what should be taught in schools. And you're seeing these sort of uh, populist movements against it. I don't know where it's headed. I have a feeling it will hopefully um begin to cool down and not be at least as heated over the next years as as covid starts to fade away but i think it's a really interesting sort of mega trend in in the us that it's it goes beyond schooling i think it's really about you know people versus government uh and and school is just one of the hot spots
1: yeah and the edtech um take on this too is like how do edtech Companies and products navigate this landscape with all of these political minds just waiting. And I do think this raises questions about user generated content. How much does an ed tech company have a responsibility in regulating that user generated content when it's shared on its platform? And what kind of risk are schools and school districts willing to take or universities? And what kinds of accountability will there be so i think it really is a big shift from post george floyd where we had a lot of movement in terms of inclusive curriculum and bringing multiple perspectives and voices this backlash is really i think in, you know in dialogue with with that movement you know hopefully we can land in a place that is both good for kids and also inclusive for our communities.
0: 100%. I mean, user-generated content and also curriculum. I mean, a lot of ed tech companies are delivering curricula into schools in various ways. And if curricula is a hot button issue right now, as it is with People thinking that mouse is inappropriate for schools because of the nudity in it. You know, if, if, if people are looking with that fine tooth comb at what their children are exposed to and trying to fight back against curricular decisions, any ed tech company that's putting curriculum into schools has to take note of these and, and basically take a stance. They have to either go anodyne and say, you know, we're not going to do anything controversial at all. We'll take everything out. Or they might, or they'll, they'll have to take appear political and say no we believe that Beloved is an important work of American literature and we're going to keep it in our curriculum and it's going to be it's going to be interesting times.
1: Well, I'm excited to hear from our listeners how you're navigating that dilemma. Make sure you comment on any of our LinkedIn posts or send in messages to a Tech Insider. Coming off of those five headlines, it's time for us to play our fun game and then we'll follow up with our interview. On the game, we're playing Two Truths and a Lie. Um, Alex has been creaming me, basically, in all of our games thus far. So this one will be a great challenge for Alex. I'm going to give Two Truths and a Lie. And Alex, you tell me which one is the lie. I'm going to start with Ben's personal journey. And I'm also going to do you know one which is related to the tech industry. Are you ready, Alex? I'm ready. All right. Okay. So, Ben, personal journey. All right. Three different facts. Tell me which one is the lie. First one: my third grade teacher quit in the middle of class, and I stepped in to deliver the lesson. Number two: I was banned from using laptops in my classroom as an educator, even though I had an entire classroom set. And three: my first interview with an ed tech company was on a yacht in the Caribbean.
0: Wow. Okay. So it's about taking over from the third grade teacher is one banned from using laptops, even though they're available or interviewing on a yacht in the Caribbean. I'm going to go with the yacht in the Caribbean is true. That just feels too strange to make up. And I'm also going to go with that. The laptops are true just because I know how committed you are to ed tech. And I wonder if that's one of your origin stories about uh, seeing technology misused in a classroom. I think the lie is the third grade teacher.
1: Well, finally, I have a victory here. It is the yacht (laughs) in the Caribbean. As much as our listeners like to think that ed tech is super glamorous, no, usually my first ed tech interview was in the basement of a uh, <laughs> dilapidated building in Oakland. So, wow. you know, if you're going for the glamorous life on the yacht in the Caribbean, probably a good time to pick a different profession. But gotcha. um, so that, yes, that teaching my third grade in teacher there. quit. <laughs> yeah, my third grade teacher uh, did quit in the middle of class. I stepped in to deliver a short lesson and then immediately declared recess time before the teacher reclaimed her spot and recommitted to the class and stepped back in. But that's my teacher origin moment. Like, oh, how did you know you wanted to be an educator? And then kudos for you on the, on the laptops in my classroom. I got a gift of a laptop cart from Seagate Technology when I was in East San Jose teaching. And because of the union bylaws, whenever you get a gift, it has to be equally distributed among all educators. And so instead of using the single laptop cart for my classroom, every teacher had a single laptop to sit in the corner of their classroom and not get used all year. All right. Now to the bigger ed tech picture. Okay. this You better warm up here, Alex, because these are, are tough ones. Coming from Holon IQ, they announced that the global ed tech market is growing at an annual rate of 516% and will surpass 50% of revenue of total education industry by 2025. So that means for every dollar spent on education by 2025, over half of it will go towards edtech of some sort. The second true truths and lie is from Dealroom, the resource that we just talked about. In Dealroom, it says that Carnegie Mellon is the number three university in the U.S. for the most alumni edtech founders. So Carnegie Mellon, popping out, EdTech founders. And the third, two truth and a lie, is from Learn Platform. Of the top 10 tools or apps used in K-12 classrooms, eight of them are Google products. What is the lie?
0: All right. So, so the first one was about at a 500% annual growth of global EdTech, and it's surpassing 50% in the next three years. Mm-hmm. The second is about Carnegie Mellon being number three in the US for alumni ed tech founders. And the third is about uh, Google being eight of the top 10 tools and apps used in classrooms. So first off, I do believe that eight of the top 10 tools and apps used in K-12 classrooms are Google properties. I think Google Classroom, Google Drive, Google Sheets, uh, they have become ubiquitous in K-12 classrooms. They are free. They, uh, you know, in most cases, they are very comfortable for teachers to use they're all interconnected and integrated that makes sense to me i think that's true i think can you name the
1: other two in the top 10 kahoot yes and oh boy um
0: i don't know tell me zoom (laughs) there you go that makes (laughs) sense and then, as for the others, I think they're almost true. I think one of them is probably off by a little bit of a number and I'm going to i know Edtech is very hot and it's growing enormously but an annual rate of five hundred percent feels a little much to me. I know that we've seen things triple, which already is a lot so I'm gonna go and I know that Carnegie Mellon is an amazing school their medals. Um a master's program is one of the best teaching and learning programs in the country. And they have lots of learning scientists and uh, lots of products coming out of them, including famously Carnegie Learning. So it makes sense to me that Carnegie Mellon would be at least number three. Maybe it's number one, but it could be at least number three. I'm going to say that the lie is the 500% growth. That feels a little inflated to me.
1: You are right. And it's more than a little. It's 16% instead of 500% growth. And it will only be 5% of revenue of the total education industry by 2025. (laughs) And I think it's important for the listeners, you know, in terms of like market size, Amazon in two quarters earns as much money as the entire ed tech industry in a year. So just one company, we are still peanuts in the relatively large $7 trillion education tool industry, we're about 5% of that. And Carnegie Mellon, I just think, you know, everything you said, they are on a fast track to becoming the number one school in the U.S. for EdTech founders, the kind of quality uh, coming out of there. And and this is sorted in deal room by also by people who've raised $10 million or more. So this is not just like I created a website These are legit companies coming out of Carnegie Mellon. And if you're not hiring there or not talking to people there, you're barking up the wrong tree. Stanford and Harvard holding number one and number two spots, respectively. All right. Well, thank you for playing our game. You are one of two. Pretty respectable. um, And great call on Kahoot in the top 10. I'll give you a bonus point on that. We are now shifting gears to our deep dive. And our guest, Alberto Arenasa from Transcend Network. Alberto and I met, I don't know, six or 12 months ago, and he's doing amazing things in the education landscape. I know, Alex, you invited him today, so maybe you can give a little bit of background, and we're excited to dive in.
0: Yeah, so Alberto has been a one-man army in the EdTech world. He runs a the Transcend Network, which is a accelerator program for EdTech founders all over the world. It's hyper-global, and it focuses on often on young entrepreneurs. He himself is a graduate of Minerva University, which is alternate global university that is a ed tech company itself. And he is just a a fount of knowledge of all things ed tech. So happy to have you here, Alberto. Thank you, Alex. Thank
2: you, Ben. I'm super excited
0: to be here. Terrific. So, so you know, we first wanted to start with sort of broad, you have a very global perspective. So we want to start with a broad question. You know, pre-COVID, during COVID, and post-COVID, What has been your overall take on sort of the growth of EdTech globally, and and maybe especially in Europe, where you've
2: been based throughout much of the pandemic? Yeah, great. This is a question I I love. So just to give a little bit of context as to what part of the market I'm most exposed to, I work with really early stage founders. So these are founders that have just started working on an idea, they've just gone full time, and we help them. Finding product market fit. So, I'm exposed to the earliest earliest side of the of of this space. There's definitely been a shift after the, the pandemic. So we we got started in 2019. We run all of our programs online, and something we we saw was a lot of the founders we talked to who were interested in joining our our fellowship. They were kind of they, they would ask themselves like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this program. It's it's fully online, <laughs> like. I, I kind of want to go somewhere. So there's been a huge change there, and it, basically all the founders that we talked to, they're really interested in how to make online learning a little bit more engaging, how to bring it to classrooms, how to bring it to to, to companies where they might be doing online training. So I think there's there's been a, a huge shift in terms of uh, what used to be programs that would be run in schools, and maybe we're ne- not necessarily technology startups. Speaking to that number that you that that chart you were mentioning, where 95 uh, percent of education spending is not technology. A lot of that has actually been turned into ed tech. So, very small platforms are are just starting up and and trying to to cater to this new new demands. I think a lot of the stuff that we saw during the during COVID is is remaining. So a lot of the the push for online training, a lot of companies. Uh, A lot of universities, a lot of schools are are deciding to stick with some of the, some of these online learning tools. I would say K-12, probably a little bit less, but I think all these trends are here to stay. In terms of what's happened at a global market um, dimension, we've definitely seen EdTech grow massively. I think... uh, Ben already shared the the numbers, but we've basically seen funding for edtech startups triple in the in the last two years. So since uh, well, actually, since 2019, and and there's just a lot more funds that are specialized specifically in education, like uh, like in our own project. There's a lot of generalist funds that are investing in education when uh, before they they kind of had that crossed from the sectors that they were actually interested in investing in. So there's been a massive change. And I think to zoom into Europe, I think Europe has actually been the, the region where EdTech investing has grown the most. So again, I, I want to give another shout out to BrightEyed and DealRoom. They have a great um, new tool that you can play around with to see some of this data. But what has happened mainly in, in Europe is it's caught up from being, I think it was something like a 10% of all funding into EdTech to over 20, 25%, I believe. It's basically seen... Funding grow from 700 million in 2020 to 2.5 billion in 2021. So even uh, during the pandemic, it grew a lot in the, in the last, uh, in the last year. And what we've seen is mostly bigger rounds. So the, the actual number of, of deals hasn't changed too much, but we've seen companies like multiverse, like, uh, Go student, uh, companies like 360 learning in France that, um, have gotten massive rounds from a lot of, these generalist investors that would never touch edtech before, so yeah, I guess the last thing I'll, I'll say about about Europe is I think there's one very interesting difference with other markets, which is that in the main the main two markets for edtech, which are the UK and France, there is actually a role for government that's actually crucial in enabling um, edtech innovation. So when you look at some of the largest rounds in the UK in edtech. Uh, multiverse comes up and multiverse is enabled by this thing called the apprenticeship levy which allows employers to offer apprenticeships um, with some incentives economic incentives from from the government you have a relatively similar program in france which has enabled uh, open classrooms to grow a lot there's a an actual budget that all consumers uh, all all citizens can spend on edtech platforms in france which is leading to just massive growth of edtech startups. So I, I actually wanted to point out that the, the role the government is playing in um, innovation in edtech in Europe. And I think a lot of governments around the world are looking at it and in, in trying to copy the model. So I'll, I'll, I'll end my, my my rant here.
1: Super fascinating. And you know the change in the funding and innovation landscape is also coupled with a change in user mindsets and learner mindsets. You know, it's really interesting your background and your journey. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about your experience as as one of the first Minerva graduates in the world and how that's shaped your view of, you know, the future of education and where does that connect with this next generation of learners who are coming through and and really rejecting the
2: more traditional brick and mortar school systems? Totally. So I was studying at a university, that was 500 years old. Um, and at the time I, I was finishing up my first year and I was bored out of my mind. I found out about Minerva when it was starting, they were graduating, they were looking for the first, the first graduating class. And um, so I enrolled, I packed up my bags, went to San Francisco and basically had four wonderful years where I was learning from a very, very diverse student body, which is, uh, to me, one of the biggest things that I saw in, the, in those years and something that I think is going to be very impactful in, as we think about the future. It's a, it's a model that's very focused on interdis- interdisciplinary thinking. So the first year, everybody studies the same, but not only is it focused on these concepts, but it's also applied, it's it, it focused on applying them as well. So it basically gets you into a new city every single semester, a different city of the world, and it gets you to apply all these things that you're learning in your classroom to to the real world. So there's a lot of valuable lessons, a lot of growing up moments as well. When you show up in India and you have to uh, go get coffee and it's uh, it's difficult and you can't speak the language in, in South Korea or uh, in Argentina, these are really, really valuable lessons. And what enables it is uh, this online learning experience that reduces the cost to a fraction of what any U- U.S. university would uh, would be. So that's actually a, a, a key thing that I, I wanted to highlight, which is that EdTech plays a role in taking something that would be extremely expensive if it was done offline and allows anybody like, like me, just coming from Madrid, to, to be able to, to join this program. So Minerva was a really interesting experience for me. I think um, I got four years of being an early employee at a startup, basically, because we were really <laughs> involved with the administration, with, with everybody, with the professors. I just I just knew that I wanted to be in the space. I wanted to help more early stage founders build new projects. And so that's how we ended up co-founding Transcend. I think one interesting thing we were jamming on before before the show is how much of a how much of a change we're perceiving in um, college student interest in, in young people's interest in in tech. I think generally there's a, a push towards more meaningful work. And so I think um, that that's a really favorable trend for edtech. So people are looking for work that is meaningful. They don't just want to be clicking buttons so that a, a company can be a little bit 1.1% more efficient with these ads. They actually want to do work that matters and whether it's climate change or education or mental health, I think a lot of young people are looking towards that. I think edtech is still pretty early on in terms of being able to to be a leader in terms of recruiting from universities. I probably don't have a, a very generalizable example, but I had a really hard time finding any opportunities in edtech. I always say it's it's been it's been a lot easier for me to found a company to uh, do all the things we've done with Transcend than it was to actually get a job in edtech. So I think um, there's still some room for growth. I think this will also change as companies reach a higher size. So I think education technology has been a very fragmented uh, market generally with relatively small companies. And um, I think that's made it difficult for companies to build a really strong presence, a a very strong global presence, which is important, and to recruit from from universities. So I think this is changing. I think we need a lot more courses, a lot more apprenticeships, a lot more programs that help students on board get started in the the edtech industry uh, because I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in this space. And I think we need a lot more people, a lot m- more diverse experiences and, and perspectives.
0: It really makes a lot of sense. And it's, it, it's amazing how Minerva, you know, everybody I've met who is a Minerva grad really seems to be a full global citizen. And they sort of think about the world in a, in a very familiar way. It doesn't, it feels like very natural to travel and explore and work internationally. And that is where EdTech has been going. So Mm -hmm. it feels like a a natural fit to me. You know, I wanted to double click on something you said before about um, apprenticeships in the European market. You know, one thing that has always struck me as very interesting about Europe, and when it comes to education, is that you have all of these different countries often have centralized education systems. But there's also a sort of Europe-wide Thinking about certain types of education, there's a lot of transferable credits. They, I know, the Nordic countries uh, students can go to schools at any of the Nordic countries. So if you're from Sweden, you can go to school in Finland, and it's treated you're treated as a, a local. There there's a lot of really interesting cross border collaborations, as well as a long history of really effective apprenticeship programs, um, often sponsored by enormous manufacturing and industrial companies as well as as well as other large companies in Europe. So Europe has been a little bit more in my mind experimental in putting together the the pipeline from college to work and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how that has affected the European edtech scene
2: totally. So I think there's there's super interesting case studies to look at in in Europe. In a way I think there is a, a shared culture around education in Europe, uh, a really strong push for p- high quality public education, which is, is truly incredible. I, I think there's there, there are some programs such as the Erasmus program that are very, very widespread. Um, so you can basically, as a third year student in most universities in Europe, you can apply for this program and get placed uh, at a different European university. So a lot of students leave home for the first time. It, it's a really uh, amazing experience. So there are some positives, but I would say, for the most part, countries tend to be very isolated. So, even from an edtech uh, growth perspective, it's really hard for let's say a bootcamp, a a company that's even selling like a SaaS tool, to to grow from let's say Spain into France or Italy because a lot of the public systems um, are centralizing the decision making. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's really difficult to 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 expand from a kind of edtech uh, go to market perspective. And I would say there are relatively different models in in different uh, countries. So if, I think uh, when you, when you talk about apprenticeships, I think Germany has been the the, the global leader, right. and what they've built in terms of the, the infrastructure for local chambers of commerce to be the meeting point for universities and employers. That is not something you can find in. Spain and Italy and the UK, um, they're they're very different. So, like the apprenticeships, for example, in the UK, which uh, they're making a comeback now, they're a lot more decentralised in a way. I think multiverse, um acts as a as a marketplace, and then the government comes in and adds a, a digital wallet that matches matches the, the funding that the company is providing. In France, it's a totally different model. So, um, I think Europe is always an interesting space for us to think about. What is working at a local level? And when we think about new tech tools that might be able to reach learners directly, that might allow for a learning community to, to learn in groups and allow for peer learning, what are the things that we can learn from all these different case studies? But um, but yeah, I, I think uh, when we look at higher ed specifically, there's just a ton of different regulations and it, it's actually very diverse, which is I think is, is a really interesting kind of uh, advantage. You know, we've talked a lot about Europe a number of
1: uh, startups in your portfolio are from developing countries actually talked with disruptia mm-hmm. friday last week um, one of your portfolios companies in transcend they're based out of bogota colombia mm-hmm. how are you seeing edtech um, innovation scaling in in developing markets and what's similar what what's different and you know for our audience like how should they be thinking about some of these regions like latam
2: yeah so I think th- th- there's a one main distinction that we have to make when we talk about global education there There are two ways to slice the spike. The first one is that locally there are companies that are able to grow within their own market and they can do it at a scale that was previously impossible so these are companies like Baijus did in India like go Student in Austria. These are companies that are growing within their their markets and they've been able to grow much much faster. Than, than they did before. And then secondly, uh, the, the second wave almost of global education is products that are global by design and that any user can access from anywhere in the world. And this is where precisely companies like Baidu's are, are trying to get to or, or even go Student. So I think the first one is a, a lot more grounded today. Like we, we can basically, we've seen that pretty much every region in the world especially Europe and, and India there's a lot more funding there's there's a lot more international money flows so a lot of the investment that you're seeing in europe it's coming from from U- us funds it's coming from softbank um this, we're seeing the same dynamic in in india and i think generally that's good it's it's allowing for new models to scale faster for larger rounds to be to be raised which is kind of what i mentioned with, with we were seeing with the data in europe i think that the part that's really difficult is the kind of global learning products. And I try to think about it as uh, through the lens of learning communities. To me, global learning communities are basically what what happens when institutions no longer run the, the world of education, when you have people that are coming together organically to learn. I think that that's a really exciting vision, one that I think is particularly well positioned for this global context. And I think there will be few universities that are able to, to crack it. So I think it's going to be individuals that start coming together, start learning from one another, and, and new rules for the system start to emerge. Uh, I think one really interesting example is if anybody here uses TikTok, I, I don't use it as much, but I have younger cousins that use it. Uh, I'm not that old, but I'm just uh, I just don't use my phone very much. But if, I, I challenge you to to see who maybe your, your kids uh, or, or somebody appear uh, I challenge you to look and, and see who they're following and where they come from. It's really interesting to see sort of how these different cultures are forming in different cities of the world. And you might see uh, somebody that has a certain aesthetic or a certain subculture that are they're all over the world, but they're finding their own identity online. There was this really interesting consumer trends research uh, report that found that uh, for Gen Zs, I think it was something like 60% of, uh, of Gen Z respondents felt more comfortable with their online identity than they felt with their offline persona. And I think there's something there. I think uh, the way that people are coming together on Twitter to learn from each other, the way that people are coming together in in DAOs, for example, in the Web3 world, people are coming together in discords and, and learning from each other in really interesting ways. And I think that's the next wave. I think that's going to take a while. I think a lot of the really interesting companies will not be venture-backable, and that's fine. And then lastly, I want to say, I think India is really at the forefront of this. Um, we see founders that apply to the fellowship, who are working full-time at a company, and on the side, on the weekends and nights, they run discords with thousands of engineers who are all learning from each other and who are getting placed in companies. And this is a scale that is is really ridiculous. It, I think it's really, really exciting. So that's how we see the sort of the next wave of global education.
0: Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting take. And, you know, it feels like there's a sort of move towards disaggregation, maybe even disintermediation of traditional schools. If if practitioners and learners and working learners can reach each other directly through discord and Slack channels or through zoom chats or through various kinds of online tools and communities, then you know, and and if what they can learn from each other, or or social media platforms like TikTok and Twitter, if what they can learn from each other is solving their educational needs, then schools <laughs> and universities really have to think very hard about uh, about why that is and what they can do to to compete with that, because it can't just be about the certification. That will at, at some point, certification will not be the the, the pure signal of. For for uh, an educated person, and when that happens, mm-hmm. if the community is not within the you know within the online world of a, of a university or a school,
2: it could be a, a massive sea change. I think you're onto something very interesting there. Yeah, I think I think this is a very long term trend. I don't think we're going to see it next year or in two years, but I think as we as we think about the new skills that will be required for let's see a software engineer there is no reason why you, sh- you should be learning those uh, those skills in your local university and why you should be employed at your local company. And I think that's a very high level change that's going to unfold over the next two decades and that I'm really excited to see. So I write a newsletter called uh, Transcend Newsletter, and it's at transcend.substack.com. We talk about Trends in the Future of Learning and the Future of Work. If you've enjoyed what I've been saying for the last 20 minutes, you'll probably enjoy this newsletter. And And this newsletter is the, the result of uh, our work with Transcend Network. So as Alex was sharing, we work with early stage founders We run a founder fellowship. So we help them find product market fit. And we're um, currently uh, building a fund to be able to invest in these companies. So we'll be writing about this fund in the coming weeks in our newsletter, so if anybody finds it interesting, I'm most active on Twitter. So you can find me uh, at Alberto Alenaza. And we'll put that, that link as well as the link to the,
0: to the newsletter in the show notes for this week. You can always find that there. So, Ben, do you want to take us out?
1: Yes. Uh, thank you for a great interview, Alberto. Always insightful to talk to you. Also, thank you to our listeners for navigating yet another week. If it happens in EdTech, you'll hear about it on This Week in EdTech. Thanks for listening.